if you're visiting today, you have come to hear teaching from one of the weirdest chapters in the Bible. Why would he choose that today? Well, that's where we're at in our journey through Genesis. Looking at the roots of the gospel, you're going to wonder, what does the gospel have to do with this? But it does. Hopefully, I'll help you make the connection. Here it is, narrated by professional actors, Genesis 19. Now the two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them, and he bowed himself with his face toward the ground. Here now, my lords, please turn into your servant's house and spend the night, and wash your feet. Then you may rise early and go on your way. No, but we will spend the night in the open square. But he insisted strongly, so they turned into him and entered his house. Then he made them a feast, and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. Now before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both old and young, all the people from every quarter, surrounded the house, and they called to Lot. Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us, that we may know them carnally. So Lot went out to them through the doorway, shut the door behind him, and said, Please, my brethren, do not do so wickedly. See now, I have two daughters who have not known a man. Please, let me bring them out to you, and you may do to them as you wish. Only do nothing to these men, since this is the reason they have come under the shadow of my roof. Stand back! This one came in to stay here, and he keeps acting as a judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. So they pressed hard against the man, Lot, and came near to break down the door. But the men reached out their hands and pulled Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck the men who were at the doorway of the house with blindness, both small and great, so that they became weary trying to find the door. Then the men said to Lot, Have you anyone else here? Son-in-law, your sons, your daughters, and whomever you have in the city. Take them out of this place, for we will destroy this place because the outcry against them has grown great before the face of the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-law, who had married his daughters. Get up! Get out of this place! For the Lord will destroy this city! But to his sons-in-law, he seemed to be joking. When the morning dawned, the angels urged Lot to hurry. Arise, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be consumed in the punishment of the city. And while he lingered, the men took hold of his hand, his wife's hand, and the hands of his two daughters, the Lord being merciful to him, and they brought him out and set him outside the city. So it came to pass, when they had brought them outside, that he said, Escape for your life. Do not look behind you, nor stay anywhere in the plain. Escape to the mountains, lest you be destroyed. Please, no, my lords. Indeed now, your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have increased your mercy which you have shown me by saving my life. But I cannot escape to the mountains, lest some evil overtake me and I die. See now, this city is near enough to flee to, and it is a little one. Please, let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my soul shall live. See, I have favored you concerning this thing also, in that I will not overthrow this city for which you have spoken. Hurry, escape there, 
for I cannot do anything until you arrive there. Therefore the name of the city was called Zoar. The sun had risen upon the earth when Lot entered Zoar. Then the Lord rained brimstone and fire on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord out of the heavens. So he overthrew those cities, all the plain, all the inhabitants of the cities, and what grew on the ground. his wife looked back behind him. And she became a pillar of salt. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. Then he looked towards Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the plain, and he saw, and behold, the smoke of the land, which went up like the smoke of a furnace. And it came to pass, when God destroyed the cities of the plain, that God remembered Abraham, and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow, when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had dwelt. That's the first 29 verses of Genesis 19. We'll stop right there. Who's ever heard it said, if there's a God, why is there so much evil in the world? Who's ever heard it said? Have you? You know, you see all sorts of atrocities happening, wars and rumors of wars and pestilences. If there's a God, why does he allow such evil in the world? Where there have been times through history he has put a stop to evil. And then God's critics, maybe you've heard them, accuse him of genocide. Well, if there's a God, why does he have to be so cruel? You know, you, you, you want to have your cake and eat it, don't you? If everybody's going to go to heaven, see, everybody wants heaven. And if there is a heaven, why is there evil? Well, there's no evil in heaven. But everybody wants to go to heaven and wants God to allow everybody to go to heaven unless they get to choose who doesn't go. You know, let's keep Hitler out of there and some other people. But if that is the case, then heaven would become earth too. God is a holy God. He's a righteous God. He's a just God. And he cannot be God unless he judges injustice, wickedness, cruelty. And if you've been cruel, wicked, and unjust, it's time to repent. Because judgment day is coming. In chapter 18, we saw... Three men, two of whom were these angels, visiting Abraham in his tent. Abraham has his wife and servants prepare a delicious meal before they go on their way. One of these angels was actually God, who tells Abraham what's about to happen. Abraham obviously is aware of the wickedness going on in this city. And so Abraham intercedes on behalf of the righteous. He said, if you're just, how can you destroy the righteous with the wicked? If there's 50 righteous in the city, will you spare it? God said, if there's 50, I'll spare it. He says, far be it from me to be presumptuous and prideful, but if there's 45, can you spare this city? If there's 45 righteous 
in Sodom, I will spare the city. If there's 40, 30, 20, 10, the conversation concludes before the Lord leaves. If there's 10 righteous people in that city, I will spare it. Well, guess what? The angels go there and do not find 10 righteous. Only one extended hospitality, and only four, well then, three were willing to be obedient. So there were only three righteous in this city of thousands of people. So let's just dive into the story. I'm going to kind of skim through it. Two angels come to Sodom in the evening, Lot sitting at the gate of Sodom. Years earlier, he had chosen Sodom to be his hometown. He was Abraham's nephew, and their, their herds got to be too big, and their cowboys, their crews, started fighting and squabbling. So they agreed to part ways, and Abraham, being the senior, allowed Lot, his nephew, the younger, who was like a son to him, you choose where you want to go. Well, he, they're there on the mountainside. He sees the well-watered plain of Sodom near the Dead Sea, so he chooses the best. He goes, he pitches his tent towards Sodom. And by this time, he's living in a house. His old uncle's still in a tent. He's in a house in Sodom, and he's kind of a gatekeeper. And so he greets these men, bows down to the ground, and says, please come to your servant's house and spend the night. Wash your feet, rise early, go on your way. And they said, no, we're going to spend the night in the open square. Well, he knew how wicked the city was, so he insisted strongly. So at his strong insistence, they turn in and go into his house, and he makes them a feast, bakes unleavened bread, and they ate, probably similar to the feast they'd had the day before at Abraham's house. And before they lay down, the men of Sodom, both old and young, can you say all ages, and all the people from every quarter. So can we say every neighborhood? They surround Lot's house. And they call and say, where are the men who came into you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them carnally. Now, this is PG-13. We'll take a few seconds if you'd like for the children to exit. But I'm telling you right now, your children know about this kind of thing. They do. This was going to be a homosexual gang rape. Maybe all of them couldn't participate, but all of them could watch. So this was a wicked community. Can we say a bad town? There are some towns in, in the world you do not want to walk down the streets alone, regardless of your gender, especially at night because of the wickedness that's in the world. So Lot goes out to them through the doorway, shuts the door behind him, and says, please, my brethren. Notice the honor he gives them. Please, my brethren, do not do so wickedly. See now, this is hard for me to take. I have two daughters who have not known a man. Please, let me bring them out to you, that you may do to them as you wish. Only do nothing to these men, since this is the reason they have come under the shadow of my roof. I brought them in my house so this wouldn't happen. 
So here's my daughters. Where you live influences you. Who you hang out with influences you. And if you're willing to pimp out your daughters, you have been influenced too much. Now, I know there's one verse in the Bible that calls Lot a righteous man, and compared to these people, he's righteous. Now, some rabbis, they have to stretch the Scriptures, but I don't know Hebrew to know whether or not it's true, but it makes it a little more palatable. They say what he meant was, I would sooner give you my two virgin daughters than my guests. These men are trusting me. That makes more sense, right? But even then, he is living in a bad place, dangerous for his kids. And we'll see in the story, his daughters are already betrothed the men. And so the gang says, verse 9, stand back. This one has come in to stay here, and he keeps acting as a judge. Does that sound familiar to our culture? Stop judging us. Stop judging us. I have a close friend that kind of lost his mind for a few years. And it led to the breakup of his family. One night, it was around 10 o'clock, I guess, got a call. His wife and daughter were broke down near our house. So I was glad to help. And uh, we got the vehicle where it could be you know, a tire could be changed later in a safer place. And I took them home. And on the way home, I, you know, discovered from them that things were not going well between them. And so I dropped them off at their house. And on my way out of their neighborhood, I see him with his cell phone in his vehicle near the entryway to their neighborhood. So I pull off the road. I say, man, what's going on? Well, yada, yada, yada. I says, help me understand. You're one of the most hardworking men I know. Why did you ignore your wife's plea for help? He said, you're judging me. <laughs> I said, no, I'm confronting you. I was glad to help, but what in the world is going on with you? And so his defense is, you're judging me, you're judging me, you're judging me. For some people, that's the only verse in the Bible they know. Do not judge lest you be judged. Now, obviously, we do not want to judge harshly, right? We do not want to judge condemningly, but we must confront one another, right? If someone has a speck in their eye, we're to get the log out of ours, which would be make us judge harshly, and go and talk to them about the blind spot going on. The same verse that says, judge not lest you be judged, is followed by another statement by Jesus, do not cast your pearls before swine, lest they turn and hurt you. In other words, don't take what is precious and entrust it to someone that's not trustworthy. Don't let just anybody babysit your kids. How can you do that without practicing sound judgment? Have we lost our minds in our culture? You're judging me. That's what they're saying. You're, you, you know, you're the foreigner that came down. Now, I got to say this about this community. God had blessed them because for years they had been enslaved to a nation east of the Euphrates and were having to pay tribute. 
you know, extortion was going on for years, and they finally rebelled, and so the, the uh, nation sent its armies in. You can read about this earlier in Genesis. Captured them and took a lot of people and a lot of their stuff to enslave them and were on a trek back to the homeland. It was going to take days to get there. And God used Abraham and 318 men plus his neighbors to go and set them free. We talked about that in another Sunday. So they have seen the hand of God, God's hand of mercy in their life. And they just grew more wicked. Stand back. You're acting as a judge. We'll deal worse with you than with them. Uh Uh-oh, Lot's fixing to get it now. So they pressed hard against Lot and came near to break down the door. But the men, the men inside, reached out their hands, pulled Lot inside, shut the door, and struck the men with blindness. So you'd think they'd stop then, right? But they were so blinded with their lust, both small and great, it says they grew weary trying to find the door. That's how far sin can take you. That's aggressive. That's aggressive. The men said to Lot, these are the two men, have you anyone else here, son-in-law, your sons, your daughters, or whomever else you have in the city? Take them out of this place, for we will destroy this place because the outcry against them has grown great before the face of the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. And we have seen the wickedness in action. So Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-law. So either they were in the house or close by, he finds his sons-in-law who had married his daughters. So this is a bit confusing. How can they be virgin daughters if they've married them? Well, there was the practice of betrothal. It's like a marriage, but it's not consummated. It's an engagement period. Mary was betrothed to Joseph when she conceived Jesus as a virgin. And uh, Joseph was very disturbed till he had that angelic visitation. You can read about that in in the Gospels. And so he says to his sons-in-law, get up, get out of this place, for the Lord will destroy this city. But to his sons-in-law, he seemed to be joking. It looked like an ordinary night. There's a moon and the stars. This guy's joking. They're not taking him serious. And he had just offered up their their, uh, fiancés. When the morning dawned, the angels urged Lot to hurry. So it's early. The sun's starting to rise. Arise, take your wife, your two daughters who are here, lest you be consumed in the punishment of the city. While he lingered, I mean, I just don't get Lot. He's dragging his feet. Well, it's time for my coffee now. No, it's time to get out of Dodge. While he lingered, the men took hold of his hand, his wife's hand, the hands of his two daughters, the Lord being merciful to him, as he made promise to Abraham, right? They brought him out and set him outside the city. So it came to pass when they brought him outside, he said, escape for your life. Do not look behind you. Do not stay anywhere in the plain. Escape to the mountains, lest you be destroyed. Get as far from here as you can. Lot says to them, Please know, my lords, this guy is so stinking self-centered. Indeed, now your servant has found favor in your sight. You've increased your mercy, which you have shown me by saving my life. But I cannot escape to the mountain lest some evil overtake me and I die. 
They're saving his life, and he's afraid of dying. See now, this city is near enough to flee to. It is a little one. Please let me escape, escape there. Is it not a little one? And my soul shall live. So he said to him, See, I favored you concerning this thing also, <laughs> in that I will not overthrow this city for which you have spoken. Hurry, escape there, for I cannot do anything until you arrive there. Judgment's coming. You're delaying it. Therefore, the name of that city was called Zoar. Guess what Zoar means? Little one. The sun had risen upon the earth. So now it's full blazing daylight when Lot entered Zoar. Then the Lord rained brimstone and fire on Sodom and Gomorrah out of the heavens. So he overthrew those cities, all the plain, all that well-watered plain gets trashed, all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But his wife looked behind him and she became a pillar of salt. Now, the Hebrew says she was behind him, and she looked from that position. So she's dragging her feet. And so it wasn't necessarily a matter of God saying, okay, I'm going to zap you with salt. But the judgment that was happening, the chemicals that were coming down, hit her. She wasn't fully obedient. Delayed obedience is what? Disobedience. Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. He went to the very place where he had pled the case for Sodom. He looked toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the plain. And he saw, behold, the smoke of the land which went up like the smoke of a furnace. And it came to pass when God destroyed the cities of the plain, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had dwelt. Let's pray. Lord, speak to us today from this story. In Jesus' name. Amen. You can Google Sodom archaeology. Don't just Google Sodom. You'll get stuff you don't want. But archaeology, Sodom, Gomorrah, and you'll see there's a lot of work that's been done over the years there. It's thought to be either north of the Dead Sea or south of the Dead Sea. The Dead Sea in Israel is the lowest point on the Earth's surface in terms of the elevation relationship between the level of the Dead Sea, and the level of the sea. And <clears throat> nothing grows there now. Nothing grows anywhere near it. It's just a tourist attraction now. But it's also a place to mine chemicals because it's very rich in chemicals. Water comes from the Sea of Galilee down the Jordan River, and everything that comes into Galilee flows out of Galilee eventually, but everything, everything that comes into the Dead Sea stays there. The lesson there. We live to give. If we live to receive, we're going to die. Not going to be good. So in their archaeological thing, they found some communities that were suddenly evacuated. It's like they were prospering, and in their digs, there's all sorts of, it goes back to what they call the Bronze Age, all sorts of industry and houses and things going on, and then suddenly there's nothing. And it's not like, uh, you know, a foreign army came in and captured people because they take stuff. So the stuff's left behind to discover. So it's believed by some that a meteor came down from the sky and exploded above the Dead Sea and rained fire and brimstone everywhere and hit the Dead Sea 
and caused a huge wave of that poison water to go all over the plain so that now nothing can grow there. It lines up with the text because the cities were judged and the plain was judged. So nobody could ever live there again. Now, some people have called hurricanes a judgment of God, and yet I see these cities rebuilt. I think when God judges a place, it's done. It's history. It's toast. There's no more Nineveh. There's no more Babylon. It's done. <laughs> Saddam Hussein was going to rebuild Babylon, but look at what happened to that. Anyway, so here's our title today, God's Judgment, Past, Present, and Future. We know there's coming a judgment day, but we can look at past judgment days and learn from them. And how is judgment day happening now? God judged Sodom for being very wicked. Look, this is what Ezekiel said to Jerusalem. When Jerusalem was in a season of wickedness, God, through the prophet Ezekiel, compares them to Sodom. He said, look, this was the iniquity of your sister Sodom. She and her daughter which would be Gomorrah, had pride, fullness of food, abundance of idleness. Neither did she strengthen the hand of the poor and the needy. So you see, there's more wickedness going on than sexual wickedness. Verse 50, and they were haughty and committed abomination. There's a sexual wickedness before me. Therefore, I took them away as I saw for whatever voice Lot was for righteousness, they wouldn't listen to him, accused him of being a judge. Wickedness was a reason God had sent the flood. The Lord, Genesis 6 says, saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, that every intent of the thoughts of his hearts was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. So the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping things and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And so through the building of the ark, eight souls were saved. But all the other wicked folks were toast. And it's not like they didn't get a chance to repent. It took them 100 years to build that boat where there was no water. <laughs> to hear this man's unusual message calling them to repent. God's judgment was first exercised in heaven. If it doesn't work at home, don't export it, right? Even in his abode, he exercised judgment. Jude verse 6 says, The angels who did not keep their proper domain, but left their own abode, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of that great day as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in similar manner to these, having given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh, are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. So, he's looking to the past and to the future. 2 Peter 2 says, for if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment and did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight people, 
a preacher of righteousness, bringing the flood on the world of the ungodly, and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them to destruction, making them an example to those who afterward would live ungodly. So this happened to warn everybody. And delivered righteous Lot. Ooh, that's hard to say, but compared to them, he was righteous. And delivered righteous Lot, who was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked. For that righteous man dwelling among them tormented his righteous soul from day to day, seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. Why didn't he get out of Dodge? Then the Lord, if he knew how to deliver these people, Noah and his family, Lot and his family, then the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust under the punishment for the day of judgment, and especially those who walk according to the flesh in the lust of uncleanness and despise authority. God is able to deliver the righteous from his judgment. So don't be worried about pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib. Don't waste five seconds arguing about it. God's going to take care of his people regardless of how it goes down. Amen? I always say you got to say pre-great trib because don't tell the saints in Sudan we're not going to have any tribulation. John the Baptist said that Jesus would bring cleansing. Look at this. I indeed baptize with water unto repentance, Matthew 3, verse 11. But he who is coming after me, that's Jesus, is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit, hallelujah, and fire, hallelujah, hold on. His winnowing fan is in his hand. And he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, and he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. What is chaff? Chaff is the part of the wheat that's got to go. He said of a day of judgment when tares and wheat would be harvested together and the angels would separate them and would burn up the tares. At the beginning of his ministry in John, he goes into the temple and cleans house. At the ending of his ministry in another gospel, he goes back into the temple and cleans house. He gives commands that will cleanse relationships. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who despitefully use you. Do good to those that persecute you. And he healed bodies, but he healed relationships with his word. And those that heed them experience the Holy Spirit. So this is a form of judgment, much better than the Sodom and Gomorrah or Noah's Ark judgment, isn't it? Let his word judge us now, lest it judge us later. Christ preached about a future time of judgment. As it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. They ate, they drank, they married wise. Is that going on today? Yes. They were given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. So... In the days of the coming of the Son of Man, it's going to be like that. Likewise, as it was also in the days of Lot, they ate, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they built. But on the day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. Even so will it be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed. So people looking at situations that appear to be normal will not heed the warnings to be ready for the day of judgment coming of the Lord. Christ said unfruitful branches will be burned. This goes on even 
now. I'm the vine, you are the branches. He that stays in me or lives in me or abides in me and I in him, the same brings forth much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. If a man abide not in me, he's cast forth as a branch and is withered. And men gather them and cast them into the fire and they are burned. If you do not have a close, living, vital relationship with Jesus, you're not going to bear fruit. And judgment is going to come and remove you from the scene, just like a good vineyard owner will do. You get rid of the dead weight, right? Get, cut off the sucker branches. Because they just take away from the nutrients that should go to the purpose of fruitfulness. Jesus said unfruitful branches will be burned. Peter wrote that while judgment day seems to be delayed to not disregard it as God being slack. God's not a slacker, but he is merciful. In 2 Peter 3, 3, he says, Knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts, saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. We're eating and drinking and we're getting married and having kids. For this they willfully forget, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, by which the world that then existed perished, being flooded with water. If you go to the days of creation, I think it was on the third day, said that God created a firmament that separated the waters from the waters. The firmament was the sky or the atmosphere. So there's water above the firmament and water above under the firmament. And when the flood came, the water above the firmament fell. So it was stored there for judgment. It's interesting that the third day of creation is the only day God did not say it was good. Just said it was so. Knowing the end from the beginning, he knew what that was made for, to bring judgment, to cleanse the earth. But the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. So the atmosphere now, we don't fully understand it, is set up for explosive condition. I understand if the oxygen in the atmosphere increases 10%, we all burn up. I understand the ozone layer is pretty thin and, and missing in some places, or was. Could it be all the concern about global warming is just God sending warnings? Hey, there's coming global warming day. And you can find people all you want to. I don't know how that's going to fix anything. It's not going to chase it away. Verse 8, But beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. The Lord is not slack, concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but as long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So, this is not a formula to try to figure out when the Lord's going to come back. But to understand God's viewpoint of time, he hasn't taken long. It's only been a couple days since Jesus was here.
1,000 years is 365,250 days to us. But to God, it's just one day. 86,000 and some odd seconds in a day. If a day is 1,000 years to God, what's a second like to God? To us, it's not much. But to God, I did the math, it's 365,250 seconds, a little over four days. So God's not constrained by time. Do not mistake his mercy as slackness, but take it serious. There is coming a day of judgment. Now, pastor, aren't you supposed to be talking about the roots of the gospel? I am. This is why the gospel is good news. Verse 10, he goes on, the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of the Lord, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And the will of God will be done 24-7, 365.25 days a year. That's what we're looking for. Now, that's good news, right? But the good news goes beyond that. Peter also wrote that judgment begins now with us. Why? So that we won't be judged then. We're either judged now or we'll be judged then. It is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, 1 Peter 4, 17, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? So the time is now for judgment to come. If we judge ourselves, we'll not be judged. How does this connect to the gospel? It connects beautifully because Jesus experienced God's judgment for us. He was the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. His cousin John the Baptist introduced him, Behold, look! Open your eyes. The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. How does he take it away? By judging sin, he became sin that we might become righteous. He became naked that we might be clothed. He became dead that we might come alive. He became poor that we might be made rich. He came down so that we can come up. This is awesome. Under the old covenant, you wanted your sins atoned. You brought a sacrificial animal, a substitute, to die in your place on the altar. And when you brought it to the priest, the priest didn't inspect you. What is it you've done? Tell me, tell me. No. The priest examined the lamb. Make sure it didn't have any broken bones. Make sure it was perfect to represent the Son of God who would come who was perfect. No warts, no blemishes, no defects, no rashes. Perfection. And if the lamb was perfect, 
it was accepted. Now here's the good news. A lamb died on a cross for all time. And he was perfect. Amen? And he received God's judgment. Isaiah 53 says, We esteemed him smitten of God and afflicted. He received the judgment for sin, which is death, in his own self. Not being worthy of death, his death could apply to whosoever will. And so when we come to God to receive judgment on our sins, to receive forgiveness for our wickedness, God does not have the attitude, what is it you've done? No. He knows the lamb is perfect. Sacrifice accepted. You're made righteous. This is good news. Why did God choose to redeem us this way? He chose to redeem us in such a way that we never lose a sense of wonder at the beauty of the gospel so that we live a life of appreciation rather than condemnation, of gratitude rather than competition, of humility because of his mercy rather than judgmentalism because we're better than other people. No, he is better. He's creating a redeemed community to populate heaven with humble, redeemed people who have been love-struck by the beauty of the good news of the Son of God. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son so that whoever would believe in him would not perish but might have everlasting Now, Lot was declared to be righteous. And just because you're righteous doesn't mean you can't waste your life. He had a wasted life. So there's people in this room, the Lord has made you righteous. The challenge to you today is to judge yourself and stop wasting your life. Devote yourself. Devote yourself to lay down your life for others. Father, I pray right now for your people that every one of us would live with an awareness of your mercy and your grace and yet the future of your judgment that is coming. Lord, we thank you for loved ones that have gone before us who did not waste their lives. And Lord, we look forward to the day of our reunion with them. But help us, I pray, to grow in appreciation for the gospel. Lord, I pray for anyone here who does not know you. I pray, Lord, that the lights would come on and suddenly they'd realize what all this is about. In Jesus' name. I pray, Lord, if any of us have been blinded by religion and have looked down our noses at other people for not being right, I pray, Lord, we would bask in the glow of your mercy, realizing just how wicked we are without you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.
convictions eclipse. 